0: Hola, esto es New Books Network en Espanol. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Chiara Bonfidioli about her new book, Women and Industry in the Balkans The Rise and Fall of the Yugoslav Textile Sector, which was published by IB Taurus in 2019. Welcome, Chiara.
1: Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Dr. Bonfidioli is a lecturer in Gender and Women's Studies at University College Cork in Ireland. She earned a BA in Political Science from the University of Bologna and an MA and PhD from the Graduate Gender Program at the University of Utrecht. Between 2012 and 2014, she was a Research Fellow at the University of Edinburgh for the project The Europeanization of Citizenship in Successor States of the former Yugoslavia. And between 2015 and 2017, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Cultural and Historical Research of Socialism at the University of Pula in Croatia. Her research focuses on transnational women's, gender, and feminist history. So, Kiara, could you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic? Yes, certainly. Um, Well, when it comes to
1: socialist Yugoslavia and when it comes to women's and gender history in the region, the focus has been uh, mainly on women engaged in politics as leaders or activists in state socialist women's organizations or feminist groups during the second wave. When I was doing my uh, postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Edinburgh within the framework of the SITSI project uh, on citizenship in Southeast Europe, I was asked to investigate something uh, more contemporary and less historical. And and then I thought uh, that I could look into uh, something related to gender and class. And right at that time, there were some uh, workers' hunger strikes happening in uh, textile factories across Croatia. And that's how I got the inspiration for uh, for this research. I thought that would be an important prism to start looking into the lives of industrial workers in socialist Yugoslavia, since industrial workers haven't been really... um, studied in detail and that's how I became interested in the topic, basically.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I I was just so enthralled by reading about the stories from obviously the perspective of the women who worked in the textile industry, but also the managers and then also the uh, publications and all the cultural history surrounding it. It's fascinating. I'd like to talk about your introduction now. And in your introduction, you mentioned that the transition from socialism to post-socialism involved the transition to different gender regimes. So could you tell us about this concept of gender regimes and um, maybe provide an example or two of how the transition has been gendered?
1: Uh, Yeah, gender regime, uh, in fact, is a concept that has been coined by Sylvia Wolby uh, when she was looking at different ways in which uh, patriarchy has been constructed at the public level. She looked especially at the gender character of institutions such as family uh, and the states. And as we know, in different parts of the world, there are different kinds of gender regime at any given time. Uh, To give just an example, during the Cold War, the main gender regime in Western Europe and other Western countries like the United States, for instance, would be the breadwinner model. And women's role within such model was the one of the housewife. We have the breadwinner, the husband, and then uh, the woman being the housewife. There was this idea that men would be paid a family wage while women could stay at home. And uh, in in places like Ireland, for instance, we even have uh, an article in the Irish Constitution which says that, I'm quoting, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavor to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labor, to the neglect of their duties in the home. So there is this very strong pronatalist family-oriented breadwinner model, and um, the state is even um, kind of pushing women to stay at home, so to say. While in other places, in the socialist bloc, but also in Yugoslavia, for instance, the main gender regime was the dual breadwinner model. So it was expected for couples couple to both work outside the home. And in my book, I talk about the working mother gender regime, which was the result of such configuration in uh, socialist countries.
0: So Chiara, what do you see as your main argument and how does it engage with the literature on gender and post-socialism?
1: Yes, yeah, so when we look at the literature on uh, the gender character of post-socialist transition, Uh, especially the one that was written by a number of feminist scholars uh, in the 1990s, we see that there was an emphasis on uh, this idea of the retraditionalization of gender relations, which was caused both by um, privatisation and post-socialist transition and also by um, uh, neo-traditionalist and uh, nationalist discourses that came up after 1989 in the region. And my argument in the book is that women's experiences of uh, industrial work during socialism and during post-socialism are pointing at this uh, phenomenon of retraditionalization in the sphere of industrial relations. So we do not only have a retraditionalization of gender relations at the discursive level in uh, nationalist discourse, for instance, but we also have an important um, economic and social dispossession which happens uh, through the devaluation of women's labor and especially women's industrial labor. Uh, and, and that's how uh, disclosures uh, of factories in the post socialist era are kind of pushing women back into, into the private sphere and retraditionalizing gender relations.
0: So uh, essentially a type of return to the interwar period in terms of uh, gender roles and relations, especially with respect to the workplace, but also the private sphere?
1: Yes, and there is a a kind of return to the exploitation that was typical of uh, textile factories in the interwar period. And that's something I talked about uh, in in chapter one when I was kind of reconstructing the history of some of these factories. Many of them, they were uh, founded in the interwar period and they were later nationalized under state socialism. And uh, when they started in the interwar period, these were often... um, foreign-owned factories, uh, private factories, and exploitation was staggering in these factories. And also uh, there was a very um, big amount of, of child labor, but also like uh, the overtime was very common and, and diseases were uh, rife in these factories. So um, that's something that um, kind of stayed as a memory of something that shouldn't be repeated, but actually, unfortunately, um, at this stage, uh, exploitation is, is back in a number of private factories across the region.
0: Yeah, and no wonder why people feel so disappointed with the transition to post socialism because uh, the conditions under which they're forced to live um, contrast for many of them so sharply with the the socialist period. Okay, I'd like to talk about your sources. And so you draw an impressive array of sources archival sources, uh, workplace periodicals, uh, photographs, uh, documentary films produced under socialism, uh, as well as uh, contemporary press materials. Um, However, your oral histories are really the primary engine that drives the narrative. So could you tell us about the oral histories? uh, How did you identify your subjects? And then what localities uh, and countries did you focus on?
1: The oral history interviews were conducted in different places across the former Yugoslavia, but mostly in Croatia, because I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pula, as you mentioned. And when I was there, I could more easily travel across Croatia. And therefore, a number of interviews were uh, done in different cities in Croatia. But I also made sure to visit other sites in Serbia, North Macedonia, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Slovenia to study different factories. And um, we could say that the case studies were chosen on the one hand because of the relevance of certain issues. For instance, in Zagreb, there was the Kamensko strike uh, in 2010, Uh, so I thought that would be an interesting example. While, for instance, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there was the SANA factory located in Novi now Novigrad, which had been the object of a television series in the 1980s, so... That was also an excellent case study because I could look at the ways in which textile workers had been portrayed in the 80s and how um, their condition changed over the years. Uh, On the other hand, I also chose these case studies based on personal and professional contacts that I could mobilize uh, to connect with industrial workers in different localities. As I mentioned in the book, in fact, most of the people I talked to coming from the region, uh, friends, acquaintances, colleagues, they had a relative, either their mother, grandmother, aunt or or a neighbor who used to work in a textile factory because these factories were really uh, widespread and each small town and village tended to have one from the 1950s onwards. Uh, Therefore, I relied on friends and colleagues very much. And they introduced me uh, to their relatives and neighbors in certain places. And that's how I managed to get in touch with a number of narrators and also to interview women of different generations. I tried to connect with women who had been uh, working both during socialism and what had experiences of working private factories in post-socialism as well. I also interviewed workers who retired uh, before 1989, so they did not experience Working private factories, uh, and finally, I interviewed younger workers who only worked after uh, transition, so they didn't have an experience of working relations during socialism, but uh, had heard uh, about those from their parents and grandparents.
0: So, how young would some of the youngest um, subjects be that you interviewed? Yeah, the youngest, uh, let's say, they would be
1: in the mid thirties or
0: forties. So they were able to experience at least a, a decent portion of, of post-socialism already then.
1: Yes. And after these younger workers, as I said, they had relatives who were employed in the same factory. So there was a sense of intergenerational comparison there. And many of them, they uh, they directly compared the experience they had with the experience of their parents and grandparents in the, in the same locality.
0: Yeah, that's a really useful and I would argue necessary uh, approach for understanding change over time. I would like to talk a little bit about how you historicize the everyday in your analysis. So You reference cultural theorist Raymond Williams' concept of structure of feeling. So could you elaborate on this?
1: Yes, so Raymond Williams, he coined this notion of the structure of feeling and he defined it as, uh, I'm quoting, a particular quality of social experience and relationship historically distinct from other particular qualities which gives the sense of a generation or a period. Uh, So the structure of feeling in his view, it was something that was permeating um, a certain um, a certain period or a generation. And that's something that really uh, resounded with the narrator's account as they kind of um, adopted similar patterns when it came to describing the facts of both industrialization and deindustrialization. And uh, the concept of the structural feeling has been taken up by a number of scholars of deindustrialization um, to analyze the ways in which uh, Certain discourses, memories and everyday feelings persist in uh, towns that have been affected uh, both by industrialization and by uh, post-industrial renation uh, and decay. And so I've been inspired by scholars such as David Byrne, Jackie Clark, Stephen Hyatt, Tim Strangelman uh, and others who have all looked at the industrial and post-industrial structure of feeling uh, in certain sites, especially um, in uh, in Western Europe, but also in North America, and I thought this concept could be useful for the post-Yugoslav region as well, and allow me to add the specific layer created by the transition from socialism to post-socialism, which was framed as also before and after of Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia came to kind of embody uh, this period of uh, normalcy and um, good working relations so the time before, which was then contrasted with the after the period after transition, after the war, which was seen as a period of um, exploitation and um, deteriorating working relations. So the structural feeling manifested itself in, in a number of interiorized values, habits and discourses that workers picked up while they were working in socialist factories. And those
0: kind of stayed with them
1: even after uh, the closure of these factories.
0: Yeah, and actually, that's a good transition to my next question. Um, Yugoslavia, of course, you have two or really three major events that occur simultaneously after the collapse of socialism. So you have the breakup of Yugoslavia, uh, then you have the transition to a market economy and the subsequent privatization process, and then, of course, you have the wars of Yugoslav succession. So how does this combination of events affect the gender dimensions of transition? And I guess how, you know, briefly... Is this different from other post-socialist states? Well,
1: privatization and war uh, and the end of Yugoslavia might seem uh, very different phenomena, but actually they were very much interconnected. When you look uh, at the ways in which these factories um, sort of uh, collapsed and um, and ceased to exist, so often in the immediate uh, aftermath of uh, of the end of Yugoslavia, in the early uh, in the early 90s, factory assets would be given to people close to the new nationalist parties in power. And famously, uh, President Flanin Tujman in Croatia said that the wealth of Croatia had to be redistributed to um, 200 families only after independence. So that's something that kept coming up in the interviews, this memory of the 200 families. And that kind of signaled uh, the ways in which uh, criminal privatization was followed uh, after um, after transition and also how it happened uh, at the time of war, which made uh, workers much more disempowered and unable to criticize uh, the government because uh, from the moment in which they would uh, voice their demands or their class uh, grievances, they would be seen as national traitors as well. So every time that people were kind of denouncing um such criminal privatization they were uh making really sure to um to state that they were not um you nostalgic and they wouldn't want Yugoslavia to be back because uh, that was a kind of um stigma word that had been um, attributed to people who were not who were seen as not adapting fast enough and that is not something uh particularly um I mean, it's, it's specific to Yugoslavia, but a similar phenomenon has been highlighted by anthropologists and, and scholars of transition in other countries uh, in Eastern Europe. This uh, uh, marginalization of working class citizens and this kind of stigmatization of uh, industrial workers, especially because of their um, alleged uh, inability to, to adapt to the new system.
0: Yeah, in the Yugoslav case, you have this nostalgia being associated also with ethnicity, so it makes it unique and particularly, as you said, concerning and people had to take great care in how they express themselves, right?
1: Definitely, definitely. And um, this um, fear of uh, being uh, singled out uh, as a national traitor uh, was something that came up uh, in some of the interviews, and also this uh, immediate feeling of uh, ethnic strife that, uh, would be felt also in places like uh, Pula, for instance, in Istria, which didn't um, directly, um, was directly affected by by the war. But nonetheless, there was a kind of new climate in which um, ethnic minorities would be singled out. For instance, the Italian ethnic minority living there or uh, people who had um, mixed marriages. Uh, there were some of my informants who had Uh, We were in mixed marriages or who had uh, a father of another ethnicity because of the um, presence of a military base in Pula. There were a number of Serbian citizens living there. And so they immediately felt this stigmatization coming um, from the level of public discourse, especially if they didn't fit with this idea of uh, pure um, ethnicity.
0: Yeah, and so that's another important contribution of your book, that it captures uh, this kind of multi-layered notion of identity in this post-socialist period, which I find really, really fascinating. Okay, I'd like to talk about Chapter 1 now. And in Chapter 1, you examine the modernization of Yugoslavia and the role of women in this process And you note that women's experiences during the war, uh, especially uh, in the partisan movement, make the story of women's emancipation under socialism unique within the context of the Eastern Bloc. So could you tell our listeners a little
1: bit about this? Yugoslavia had a very important uh, grassroots resistance movement, uh, and uh, scholars have underlined the importance of women's participation for the success of the anti-fascist resistance in Yugoslavia. The discourse of women's emancipation through revolution and through uh, resistance was really foundational for the state after World War II. Uh, And also it was crucial for a number of activists who had been partisan and who um, became in charge of women's emancipation policies um, in the post-war era. These were women who took charge of factories and other institutions, and they really uh, tried to implement what I call uh, gender pedagogies in the book. So they had this ethos of emancipating other women, uh, notably women who were less educated or living in rural areas or um, just disadvantaged women. And textile factories uh, became a kind of uh, principal mean for uh, gender modernization. Uh, They were seen as a suited uh, place for work for women because of their nimble fingers, but also as places where women could emancipate themselves from patriarchal gender norms uh, through um, work. And uh, this was something foundational also for Marxist um, theory, of course, that came from Marxist theory that was not only specific of Yugoslavia, but um, it was something that could be seen in the whole uh, socialist bloc textile factories were also seen as places where women could get an education. For instance, there were many vocational training available in the post-war era for workers who wanted to educate themselves. And so this ethos of emancipating other women was really at the core of socialist discourse in Yugoslavia and was also part of um, the structure of feeling, if we want to come back to that concept, of a number of uh, female leaders of state socialist women's organizations.
0: Yeah, and this actually relates to my next question, uh, which deals with the degree to which factory work shaped women's lives. So these factories sought to mobilize women into the labor force by offering them a living wage, by offering them opportunities for advancement, for vocational training. Um, And so could you maybe talk a little bit about this and also tell us about their experiences on the factory floor? What were workplace conditions like? Uh, And then maybe you could talk a little bit about how women workers were uh, represented by the state.
1: Yes, so many of these women started to work in this factory at a very young age. We could uh, see some of them starting even uh, as young as uh, 15 years old. And this was kind of the the minimum age for work in socialist Yugoslavia. And uh, many of them started to work from the same village or the same uh, small locality, so they kind of grew up together let's say in the factory and the factory um, often became what they called a second home so some of them they told me the factory was my second home that's where I became a woman that's where I became a mother and that's uh where I started to understand what work was what life was and often they would meet uh, a fellow worker uh, and and marry and have children and start to save through their wage uh, for for a house or try to apply for subsidised housing. Uh, So the the factory really became a a foundational place. And we have to remember also that these factories were offering a number of welfare services and were seen as social buffers, especially for women uh, who didn't have uh, a family uh, backing them up or a husband. So widows or single mothers really could count on the factory as a kind of um, big family. Also, workers could count on the factory if something was wrong with their family or husband. They could get an advance on their wage. So they had a sense of having some resources they could tap on if needed. So there was really kind of uh, a kind of sense of being a, a big family. And uh, there were stories about, you know, the, the working collective helping uh, some of the single mothers to, to get uh, certain certain objects or, or giving making some kind of money collect for, for those who were in need. And... Uh, Some of the workers also got housing, but the housing distribution was a tricky one. So there was some resentment about some not getting housing uh, while others in the same condition got it. Uh, But still, there was a feeling of belonging to a factory that would be uh, taking care of them. And when it comes to workplace conditions, that's something that uh, was uh, highlighted uh, by workers uh, all the time. The fact that working conditions were hard both during socialism and in post-socialism, in the sense that workers were submitted to a norma or a peace rate regime and uh, their wage would be calculated on the basis of the number of uh, pieces they would be able to uh, sew or stitch or, uh, or iron or package in a, in a given day. So there was um, um, a middle manager uh, called uh, the person who was enforcing the Norma or Normirats, who was going around and minuting the activities of these women and seeing how fast they could go on the shop floor. And and so this um, Norma regime was seen as something that was very hard and very uh, strenuous, let's say. And a number of these women, uh, they had to retire with an invalidity pension, so they couldn't um, get full pension because of the uh, strenuousness of the work, which was kind of uh, impacting on their sight or or their hearing or their um, um, different kind of of health uh, issues. So a number of women uh, were kind of damaged by this work um, because it was a very intensive um, labor, um, intensive work at the machine
0: they were also i'm guessing though receiving awards and different types of recognition for their achievements especially for fulfilling or over fulfilling these norms
1: yes especially at the beginning after the war there was this phenomenon called udarnistvo or uh, shock work which kind of resembled uh, stakhanovism from um, from the soviet union and women were encouraged to um, Let's say reach their norm and over surpass their norms, and they were seen as uh, models to emulate for other workers. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I mean, these norms were also. Um, were also manageable. I mean, that's something that uh, they were hard, but they were manageable. And um, and a number, if 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 workers couldn't fit with these uh, norms from the very beginning, I think they would um, they wouldn't be kept in the factory. I mean, it was it was made sure that those who stayed in the factory could um, manage these um, norms of piece rate work.
0: Yeah. So not as kind of um, exemplary or as unattainable as we see with so union. I had a kind of follow-up question related to workers in these factories. So where are the men and what capacity do we see them in these factories? What jobs do they assume?
1: Yes, so we see uh, men uh, generally as
0: managers within these factories.
1: But there are also men uh, who are blue-collar workers within these factories. Uh, For instance, uh, the factory in in Varas, in Vartex, it had uh, 40% of male workers and uh, 60% of female workers. And so some of these factories were not uh, exclusively women's factories, but were also including a number of uh, male blue-collar workers. Of course, there was a clear uh, gender hierarchy um, in, uh, in when it came to power relations on the shop floor with men being mostly um, managers or middle managers. And uh, also there were a number of uh, grievances that one can read um, in archives, especially when it came to um, male workers being given more prominence in um, self-management organs and uh, workers' councils. And uh, in the case of the Vartex factory, for instance, women complained that Um, pubs and bowling alleys were built uh, for male workers instead of more useful facilities, which would also benefit female workers.
0: So even though you have predominantly women working in this factory, the types of leisure facilities are designed for the males and mainly the male management.
1: Yes, that was something that was clearly evident in a number of factories where, um, let's say, the amount of of male workers was also significant. And uh, in a number of instances, women were voicing um, the view that um, because of the predominance of men in the management, uh, male workers were kind of uh, privileged, let's say.
0: Yeah. And it also kind of underscores this notion, traditional notion that women don't have time for leisure, right? It's not something that they engage in. So why should we devise leisure activities for them? I find that striking, but not surprising. Uh, Okay. Let's move on to chapter two. In chapter two, you examine the working mother gender contract. So um, can you explain this concept as well as discuss the double burden, maybe even triple burden, and how your work complicates conventional understandings of it? In the chapter, I look at the ways in which uh,
1: the working mother gender contract was uh, constructed in Yugoslavia in terms of um, the state um, encouraging women to uh, join um, work in the public sphere as equal workers to men but also in terms of socializing certain uh, reproductive tasks uh, for women in the private sphere. And uh, this idea of socializing reproductive tasks in the private sphere was never fully achieved. And that uh, that is what uh, gave rise to the phenomenon of the so-called double burden, which has been studied uh, to a great extent by uh, feminist scholars. So women uh, were engaged in this uh, shift in the factory. So they would do either the morning shift or the afternoon shift or the um, very burdensome uh, night shift, and then they would still have to uh, go home and take care of um, domestic tasks and childcare. So there wasn't really uh, time or energy to engage in further meetings or additional political activities. After, after this work shift, uh, which has been um, kind of characterized as the triple burden. Well, in Yugoslavia the triple burden wasn't really an imposition, it was something that women could easily avoid by invoking their double burden, so their lack of time and having to, already to combine productive and reproductive labor. Uh, there was also the issue of commuting and of peasant workers, so some of these were, women were commuting from surrounding villages, so they had even less time to uh, engage in uh, political activities, and so um, what I argue in the book is that we need to historicize this phenomenon of the double burden and the triple burden. We shouldn't assume that this um, uh, phenomenon was uh, the same uh, throughout the socialist period. It actually changed quite a bit um, according to the different decades and the different factories. And also uh, depending on the welfare facilities that were available in places like Slovenia, childcare, for instance, public childcare was uh, very widespread, while in other countries, uh, in other, sorry, natural republics of Yugoslavia, um, it it was um, a bit more difficult to achieve. So depending on um, the s- possibilities of uh, welfare facilities available, women could also find uh, different private solutions or public solutions to their double um, burden and the possibility to combine Uh, work in the factory with uh, work inside the home.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting that they were able to use the double burden in certain cases to be able to argue um, that they can't assume this additional burden of uh, engaging in committee work. And I also find it uh, important, which your work underscores, is that this double burden wasn't necessarily viewed as such by women. It was seen as sometimes kind of ennobling, right? That women were able to reconcile all these responsibilities, so they felt a sense of pride about it in certain cases.
1: For sure, and I think uh, that's something that comes up in the book quite a bit, this um, interiorized um, self-sacrificial norm that was uh, constructed in Yugoslavia you know about women who could kind of do it all. So the woman was uh, holding the the three corners of the house, and the woman was made of granite and is can really uh, do it all and manage it all. So that was something that was. Uh, coming up quite a lot in official discourse and it was also interiorized to a certain extent by women. Um, Also, there was a strong discourse of uh, sacrifice for future generations that was uh, reproduced in a number of representations and workplace uh, periodicals. There there were many uh, portraits of uh, pensioners and workers who started in the early days, uh, in the 40s and 50s, when the factories were really in a poor state and the equipment was really lacking. And so these workers were Telling their stories, how they started to come to the factory without shoes, or working in very difficult conditions when there was no canteen or no subsidized housing, and how they, thanks to their to their work, they managed to to get the factory to a certain degree of success in in later years. And so there was this sense of gratitude for the work of the um, older generation and also the younger generation were. Um, invited to sacrifice further and to uh, make things better. So this this discourse of intergenerational solidarity somehow uh, was broken by uh, post-socialist transition and post-Fordism because this factor is uh, ceased to exist. And so um, this idea that they could uh, be useful also for uh, children and grandchildren of the existing workers uh, kind of
0: uh, ceased. So you don't have that culture of Community building, but also that culture of negotiating with the factory in order to kind of stake your claims. I had a follow up question on the double burden, and I was wondering uh, about women's ability to advance uh, in the workplace, in the labor force, and so how their combined responsibility of home and work affected their ability to advance. As I mentioned,
1: there was this issue of the double burden, lack of time, lack of energy, but also from the 1970s and 80s, there was a certain widespread disillusionment with uh, the bureaucratic character of self-management. And that was something that was not only um, typical of women, but also of men. And it also came up in a number of interviews, this idea that workers' councils were um, somehow uh, ritualized Institutions where workers couldn't really make a difference. I mean, on the one hand, they would say that if they had a serious issue or complaint, they would be heard by the managers. But on the other hand, uh, when they were talking about the Workers' Council, they were saying that uh, they would know uh, already the outcome in advance of, of that meeting or that um, decision-making process. Uh, so there was a certain disillusionment, especially when it came um, to uh, blue-collar workers and uh, their view of... Politics, what they call politics, with a big P, which is something kind of uh, demeaning and uh, something they wanted to uh, stay out of. Uh, on the other hand, there were uh, a number of, um, um, let's say, discussions, in, uh, especially within uh, state socialist women's organizations and their archives. Uh, it's, it's possible to see that there were discussions about um the fact that men were the ones that were really uh, blocking women from advancing. So they were uh, denouncing the fact that women were not active uh, enough in the factory, but at the same time, they were not doing anything to support them um, when it came to uh, education and uh, advancing in um, in the uh, management skills. So there are a number of uh, complaints voiced, especially by activists, female activists in state socialist women's organization or trade unions, which are saying we're actually uh, subsidizing um, our husbands <laughs> That's who, there's, there's one quote which is really nice like we are the ones who are uh, kind of um, subsidizing our husbands because we are cooking for them we are making life easy for them we are the one taking care of the children in the meantime they are studying they are advancing uh, after the um, factory hierarchy while we're uh, unable to uh, educate ourselves further or um, move uh, from a certain position to to a better one. So there was definitely this feeling also of uh, women being uh, prevented from advancing due to the uh, patriarchal character of uh, decision-making within the factory.
0: Right. And then, the, of course, the continued patriarchal character of gender roles in the home and I guess it seems that then workers' self-management was also distinctly gendered in your study. Um, I had a a question about women workers in general. So maybe you could just give us a snapshot of what the typical working day might be for a a woman. And I know you obviously um, interviewed a host of different types of women from different backgrounds, but maybe just kind of some sense.
1: Yes. so there is... uh, uh quite uh, well-known documentary uh, from 1966 called uh, From 3 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, filmed by um, filmmaker Kresho Golik in the Pobeda factory near Zagreb. And it shows uh, one of these uh, textile workers basically uh, waking up at 3 a.m. Uh, to, uh, to take care uh, of the house and their child and then to um, rush uh, to the first shift morning shift in the factory, uh, then coming back home after a certain uh, amount of time spent on public transport, trying to uh, shop for, uh, for the dinner and then coming back home and again taking care of the child and, and cleaning the house while the husband is coming back home and um, also having a rest and going out again for some leisure time. She keeps working uh, until uh, 10 p.m. in the evening. Uh, and I could recently uh, locate this woman. I still didn't manage to talk to her but it would be very interesting to know her version of the story because in the movie um, there is really this emphasis on the alienation of the working day um, and uh, the fact that textile workers were really kind of um, um strip of time all, all, all day. They were kind of rushing from from one task to the other. So these were the kind of um, days that textile workers were, were having, they especially also if they had the night shift, that was something that uh, was... Um, Denounced as very strenuous and very burdensome for many of them, the fact that they would go to the night shift and come back in the morning and still have to take care of the children or uh, or the house. And uh, the night shift was something that um, was uh, was discussed throughout the socialist period, the possibility to, to to cut this night shift. But actually, because of Yugoslavia's dependency from uh, foreign markets and uh, trying to be productive at the level of uh, textile production, this night
0: shift. Continued very well into the uh, 1980s. Yeah, I found the same thing with the workers I interviewed in Romania and just how draining in particular the night shift was because then they had to return home and then tend to their children, to their husbands, and they couldn't really get much rest. And this gets me to my next question about resilience. So how do women narrate their lives and how is resilience a part of this? I mean, how do they sustain this schedule that is so full of activities where they don't even find a minute or two for themselves?
1: Well, resilience is something that is always there in the narrative. Um, That's something that's also closely connected to the sense of uh, sacrifice And uh, this is something also specific of a certain generation uh, who uh, got used to uh, work um, very early in life and who couldn't conceive of life without work. And I see also this with uh, my grandmother who also started to work very early. So life was basically work and you were not uh, supposed not to work, right? So uh, that's something that's embedded in this um, generation's narrative. And also it's something that uh, on the one hand, is self-sacrificial and burdensome, but it's also something that is serving them well in post-socialist transition when um, this uh, factory job are disappearing and they still manage to get by by mobilizing their traditional skills, such as sewing, knitting, cooking, cleaning, uh, and so on. So the gender skills that they had, they put them to work outside the home when this factory um work was no longer available uh, and couldn't give them uh, a wage anymore. And and so resilience is something that is there and is also sort of a source of pride. Uh, Scholar Nina Budopivets has interviewed a number of textile workers in Slovenia and and some of them told her, I managed to get by because I have golden hands. So they were really emphasizing this uh, ability to to do it all and to kind of survive against all odds. On the other hand, also uh, underlined that um, this, this unfairness you know, of, of having to keep working um, at a later age. And, and some uh, said, you know, I would be very happy to be able to enjoy my retirement, but uh, I'm not able to because I have to keep supporting uh, my children, grandchildren who are now unemployed. or So a number of these women, they had to uh, continue uh, working even after retirement. Some of them, notably from the region in Istria, uh, they went to work in Italy in elderly care other engage in uh, other activities, such as smuggling, informal uh, uh, informal textile work uh, in, in private factories, selling at the market, and, and other tasks that they could find to survive.
0: Yeah, and this burden is being disproportionately shouldered by women because they can more seamlessly mobilize these skills, whereas men in particular industrial laborers, um, can't really, their skills are not in demand. So there's there really aren't these skills to mobilize in the same way. It seems just um, so inequitable. I'd like to move on to chapter three, which examines the labor force after the collapse of socialism. So from what your respondents say, it appears that things have come full circle. That is, women are once again exploited under capitalism. And you referred this earlier on in our interview. Can you tell us a bit more about this and um, how work cultures and women's everyday experiences look today, how they differ from the socialist period? After the collapse of Yugoslavia, on the one hand, uh, textile workers experienced
1: industrialization and factory closures. And on the other hand, they experienced intensified exploitation in the remaining factories under private ownership. And and really the rootlessness of this exploitation is something that comes up in a number of the interviews, which are similar all all over the region. I mean, this this, uh, kind of narratives are uh, coming up uh, across uh, ethnic groups and across uh, national uh, identities. Uh, There is uh, this feeling of lack of respect, lack of recognition all of a sudden, workers, working for someone else, as opposed to working for the uh, self-managing collective as during socialist times. There is also this feeling, especially for women, that owners are no longer accommodating uh, their reproductive duties and tasks. For instance, if they have to uh, take care of a sick elderly relative and arrange a funeral, or if they have to get sick leave for a uh, checkup, or if they want a holiday with their family, uh, the owners are no longer um, kind of accommodating such a request. Uh, and, uh, and there is this feeling of working for someone else and working for the profit of someone else and not for the future of, um, of younger generations. There is also a certain amount of the skilling of white-collar workers, especially uh, those middle managers uh, whose expertise is no longer recognized in your private factories. They had to reconvert uh, and start working in production again. And that made them feel really uh, devalued somehow. Um, there is also uh, a feeling of uh, less harmonious social relations in the factory. So uh, this idea that workers are now uh, in competition with each other and they're no longer uh, able to support each other because uh, they feel so uh, expendable and so uh, vulnerable when it comes to um, to the contracts and and to the precarity of the job and uh, this feeling of being expendable is something that came up also in some uh conversations i had with trade unionists in the region and uh, one of them that he mentioned this phrase um that was uh said by a number of uh new uh private owners of factories in the 1990s uh to to signal this um, expendability and um Multiplicity of um, of textile workers. They would say, "You kick a bush, and then seamstresses come out." So this idea that w- there were all the seamstresses out of work, and they were just there waiting for uh, for a job and to and to be hired. So workers couldn't really voice their demands or their claims without feeling that they could be uh, dismissed because someone else uh, was there waiting to have their place. And that's something that came up in a number of interviews as well, like with ordinary workers, they would say, you know, if what they would say about, you know, the boss's discourse would be that they heard, if you're not happy, um, you know, you can go. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it is. And if you're not happy, you can just go and I have uh, many others willing to keep, to take your place. So there is this feeling of being expendable, being easily blackmailed. Um, Unionizing is also very, very rare in the textile sector, especially because uh, it's being uh, obstacled very much by factory owners, Um, but also there are new laws uh, that are in this new uh, socialist state. The laws are very much on the side of the owners, so um, unionization is also uh, difficult from a a legal perspective.
0: Yeah, what you're saying is similar to what I discovered with my respondents in Romania who are feeling the sense of vulnerability, expendability, and really... uh, they feel this loss of community because of course, at the factory they had developed these important networks and relationships which were both psychologically uh, sustaining but also in certain cases materially sustaining um, because they could secure goods in this way, um, et cetera. And I'm glad you touched on this issue of um, unionization and and the fact that really there are very few opportunities for collective bargaining in this context And I was wondering, is that true with respect to domestically-owned companies as well as foreign-owned companies? What I could observe is that in some of these factories, which used to be
1: um, state-owned, for instance, Vartex, which is now uh, restructured but still keeps uh, some um, public ownership, uh, the the workers' um, condition was um, slightly better and more protected than in newly created private factories, especially in places um, such as in Shtip in North Macedonia, where these factories were created um, uh, out of the blue, let's say, in the 1990s, and um, they, w- they weren't really connected to previous uh, to previous socialist factories. So uh, I would say um, the, the situation is slightly better for, for this previous socialist factory, which are still surviving. Not many of them are there. Um, the factories that are kind of... Uh, newly newly uh, created are uh, worse, uh, but what 's even worse are the subcontractors so if we look at uh, factories such as um, branches for instance of big uh, big brands such as Benetton, the main factory would have a slightly better condition than uh, than the subcontracting uh, small factories that are uh, be given work by by the main branch uh, where workers are really um, fully exploited. And uh, there's been a number of reportage on workers in other sectors, not just the textile sector, in uh, places like Serbia, uh, where workers were um, forced to uh, wear uh, diapers, for instance, because they were not allowed to go to the toilet, or they had uh, to wear a white band on their arm uh, when they would be on their period, for instance, because then the the, the managers will know that they would need to, to go to the bathroom. Um, more more often like things like that so uh, or a, a woman who uh, was uh, um in treatment for cancer who was fired so there was a there was a whole uh, scandal in the media there as well uh, for one of this company so these were mainly um foreign companies, foreign direct investment. So there is also this conflict between locally owned companies and companies owned by uh, foreigners, especially this foreign direct investment in places like uh, Serbia or Macedonia uh, seems to be particularly uh, ruthless and connected to um, exploitation.
0: I mean, those stories are just so unbelievably uh, invasive, degrading, humiliating. I just can't imagine. You know, I'm thinking, of course, you're talking about Serbia, which isn't a member of the EU, and would those conditions then exist in places like Croatia and Slovenia that are EU members? Would there be a space for the workers at least to air their grievances and have them heard, most importantly, and then have uh, a response um, by higher level authorities?
1: Well, I I would say that in in places where not a member of the EU, on the one hand, there there are more... uh private companies remaining because of the lower uh, cost of the labor force. Uh, and so in places like Slovenia and Croatia, which had asked access the EU, uh, there is a little um, textile production remaining, mainly because of uh, prices. Uh, and so uh, there is a bit of a difference there uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, wages across the region. And so there have been cases of... Um, Factor is being moved from uh, from EU countries such as Slovenia and Croatia to places like Macedonia and and Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina because of lower wages and and let's say more uh, freedom to to exploit let's say when it comes to uh, EU access and the number of protection that would be uh, provided by EU membership, I don't think that is the case. I mean, I I also found some very exploitative conditions in places um, like Osijek in in Croatia. So they were not uh, uh, significantly different, only the difference is that there is less less production in in EU countries. Um, Yeah, and so what a number of reportage and, and accounts have highlighted is that all across the region, even in countries that belong to the EU, There is a strong uh, exploitation when it comes to the textile sector. There are a number of reports um, written by the Clean Clothes campaign. Uh, For instance, a report uh, titled Made in Europe, which is highlighting... Uh, the exploitative character of the production, even in countries where, which are members of the EU, but even more so in countries which are not members because they are less, uh, le- there is less control, let's say. So uh, when it comes to um, production in the EU, we have this feeling that it might be uh, better than in places like Southeast Asia. Uh, but actually, uh, a number of these workers are um, dealing with uh, poverty wages and uh, very, very uh, exploitative and labour-intensive uh, conditions.
0: Yeah, and your discussion of people's dissatisfaction with the post-socialist workplace actually relates to my next question, uh, which relates to chapter four. And in chapter four, you examine nostalgia. So I'm wondering, um, how do women narrate their lives under socialism? What role does nostalgia play in this? What type of language do they use in representing this longing for the socialist past? Women uh,
1: are... Expressing their longing for uh, let's say past recognition as i mentioned uh, there used to be a certain amount of recognition for workers both in terms of symbolic recognition but also in terms of welfare services they could access through the factory so they're longing for such um, welfare um, welfare services a certain purchasing power they used to have during socialism and also a certain sense of safety and security that was uh, coming from the fact of working in the same place all their lives. They also long for a future for their children and grandchildren, and uh, there is some kind of pulse for this affect there, uh, and it's also part of their structure of feeling, this um, this, uh, longing for a time in which um, one could go... uh, go to work uh, straight after their vocational training or um, or studies and uh, they will be immediately hired right so a number of these women i interviewed they were saying like um, i'm so sorry you know that that my children or grandchildren they have to deal with this they're uh, highly educated they have diplomas they have uh, university degrees and yet they cannot find a job they have to emigrate somewhere else uh, to be able to do uh, what they studied for and and that's something that didn't exist in their times uh the other thing that they they long for and that they're sorry that their children and grandchildren cannot enjoy again is the sense of um normalcy and security and uh, and just being carefree so to say so this feeling of of not having to worry for uh survival on an everyday basis and and this of course has emotional consequences i mean this uh this is something that is um tiresome and uh, and difficult for them but at the same time um This longing for the past and uh, reflexive nostalgia, as I call it in the book, is something that keeps them going uh, in the sense that it's something that can can be mobilized to reclaim their dignity and uh, the dignity of manual labor, the dignity of knowing that they are uh, worthwhile individuals, even though uh, their factories no longer exist and even though uh, they've been uh, mistreated on a number of levels.
0: Yeah, and speaking of factories, uh, you talk uh, a lot about the Arena Factory and about what happened to it uh, after the collapse of socialism. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: The Arena Factory in Pula was founded in the late 40s in a former tobacco factory uh, on the uh, harbor in Pula, and it immediately uh, started employing a number of women who were seen as kind of social cases, so uh, widows or or single mothers, and uh, there was definitely this kind of ethos of uh, emancipation that was part of the uh, paternalistic discourse of the management. And the factory started to produce uh, very um, very nice knitwear garments uh, from the 50s onwards, and a number of them in the 70s and 80s started to be exported in global markets, not just um, in Western Europe and the Soviet Union, but also uh, in places connected to Yugoslavia through a, through the non aligned movement. And the designer of the Rena factory in Pula, Maria Vareško, won a number of prizes for these uh, knitwear creations. And so there were um, around 700 workers that worked for the Rena factory during socialism, uh, and a number of them um, remained throughout the post-socialist period because they continued to produce for brands such as Stefanel and Benetton. However, um, in the uh, early 2010, the factory started to accumulate losses after um, a series of uh, uh, mismanaged decisions. And uh, in in 2014, workers uh, stopped receiving their wage. So they worked for a number of months without their wage, but then... They realized that the factory was collapsing, and so they started to go on a strike to um, to ask for bankruptcy to be declared and to be able to at least claim uh, some uh, social welfare money because if uh, the factory was still formally functioning, they couldn 't even access that and so um, the collapse of the arena factory really had uh, very severe emotional consequences in the in the city of Pula first of all because this was seen as a kind of uh, successful factory, the highlight of the city. Um, the knitwear production in, in the arena Factory was seen as something really of high quality, really prestigious. Uh, women all over Pula are still raving about these uh, knitwear garments, how good they were, how they wouldn't uh, ever get destroyed, even in the washing machine. There were a number of, you know, um, prizes won, as I said. And uh, and when this factory closed, workers really couldn't believe that this factory would uh, would be gone. And and they um, compared their disbelief um, about the closure of the factory to the disbelief that they have about about the collapse of Yugoslavia. So they said, I couldn't believe that this factory no longer existed as I couldn't believe that Yugoslavia would collapse one day, you know. And uh, what uh, especially, um, let's say, aggravated uh, workers is that uh, not only they weren't paid for several months and not only this money wouldn't uh, wouldn't be given back, but also there was an internal bank in the arena factory that had been created in the 60s for um, the benefit of of, um, the entire collective. So workers would uh, generally put their money in this bank rather than in normal banks. And some of them had saved a number of um, some money for for their elderly days um, in this internal bank. And all of a sudden, uh, these savings were gone. And so uh, not only the workers who were dismissed, but also the pensioners were affected by uh, this collapse.
0: And I'm guessing there was no collective bargaining they could organize in in order to make sure they can get that money back, right? There was no one they could go to.
1: I haven't been following in in these last years, but when I was there uh, a few years later, uh, they were still waiting for repayment and the factory was uh, still being sold floor by floor. So I'm not sure uh, at this stage what has been uh, given back, but definitely uh, not the savings that were part of the internal bank.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really a tragic tale, because you have this dual crisis happening, right, privatization and the war, and just how there was this um, very fixed, you know, notion of what Yugoslavia was, life in the factory, and how it framed their life experience for decades. And then all of a sudden, it just disappears at the same time, right. So I I can't even imagine how existentially disruptive this was for them. And, um, you know, just, how one recovers from such major transformations, uh, which, of course, you see similar transformations in other countries, but not with with war uh, and the destruction of the country, uh, the dissolution of the country. Uh, Okay, let's move on to chapter five now. And um, you kind of touched on some of these issues, uh, this idea of resistance to the conditions that women are experiencing uh, under post-socialism. So You've mentioned precarity. And then, of course, you've mentioned some of the humiliating circumstances women uh, have experienced, not just in Serbia, but in in EU countries as well, such as Slovenia and Croatia. So can you just maybe talk a little bit more about these forms of resistance and then maybe uh, address how the broader community has been a part of these resistance movements?
1: When it comes to uh, the struggles of textile workers, we can see that there has been uh, a number of uh, solidarity initiatives uh, in in different post-Yugoslav states. For instance, uh, in Croatia, the Kamensko hunger strike in, in 2010 uh, was something that was um, supported by a number of uh, civic society uh, movements, uh, notably uh, the Right to the City initiative, but also uh, other uh, other movements of students and activists, and um, the the, the Kamensko workers were invited to take part in a number of theater productions, for instance, uh, written by young activists who have other um, core uh, the struggle uh, for uh, for a dignified life uh, when it comes to the Kamensko workers. So um, there have also uh, when I started doing research in Shtip in 2013. Um, I didn't find any uh, specific solidarity initiative with, with textile workers. But uh, a few years later, I was invited to give a lecture in a new uh, cultural center led by an activist who used to be a textile fa- a factory worker. And um, this new center is called Kutz Textile. It's in Skopje, and it's supporting workers in advocating for their rights. So uh, even in a place like North Macedonia, there has been a new kind of awareness uh, among younger generation of. Uh, the importance of advocating for um, better working conditions for uh, workers of different generations. What we've witnessed in the past 10 years is a new awareness of issues of class and and generally social issues when it comes uh, to the region, also as a result of of new movements from the Bosnian Spring of 2014 uh, to... um, uh, other movements against corruption and, and for dignified uh, labor that um, crisscross the region. And uh, to, to end this comment on a, on a positive note, uh, I would like to mention that uh, one of the main activists who was supporting the, the Kamensko hunger strike in 2010, uh, Tomislav Tomashevich, is, as of last week, the new uh, mayor of the city of Zagreb, Uh, after an unexpected uh, victory of the green left coalition in the city.
0: That's wonderful. I mean, these things matter. Mobilization matters. And I think we're seeing that throughout the region. And I'd like to go back just quickly to the Bosnian Spring. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what transpired there.
1: I mentioned the Bosnian Spring in the book, uh, because uh, even though It didn't really start from uh, textile workers. There was uh, an unexpected alliance there between industrial workers, especially in the Dita Chemical Company in Tuzla, and activists and students who would organize what they called the plenums or uh, assemblies, which were uh, debating the uh, the issues that are uh, most pressing in the bosnian context and uh, for the first time after after the war there has been a mobilization that has been uh, going on on civic grounds and not on ethnic grounds and i think that's something that is really important when it comes to this new awareness among younger activists uh, of uh, social issues and class issues. The region has been read uh, for so many years through the prism of ethnicity and nationalism and not through the prism of economic and social dispossession. And these new movements are pointing instead uh, at uh, the importance of recognizing how much the transition was also about economic and social dispossession and how much um, this phenomenon marginalized workers and uh, and others anybody really who uh, was struggling for uh, dignified work and decent work.
0: Yeah, I mean it's incredibly important because it's also a recognition that ethnicity is used as a tool to divide when in fact there are many commonalities around which individuals can and should mobilize especially against exploitation in the labor force. So uh, I find it uh, heartwarming. Definitely. And there is also this uh, famous slogan from the uh,
1: Bosnian Spring of 2014, uh, which mocks this, uh, how ethnicity has been used as a tool to divide people and citizens. And it's a slogan that says, we are hungry in three languages. So this is mocking the division of Bosnia into um, three different uh, ethnicity uh, with three different languages, which is something, abs- of course, absurd because people speak the same language. But because of this um, emphasis on... Um, ethnicization and ethnic difference, Uh, this emphasis on having three different languages, is something that has been used by uh, nationalist parties for a long time. So uh, the slogan,
0: we are hungry in three languages, is pointing at that. It's a really powerful statement, and it gets at just the core of the reality of people's lives. Um, To kind of continue with this conversation, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit also about how work, workers are represented in popular culture. You talk about songs and theater performances in your book? Yes, yeah, so in the book I talk about the theater performances which are involving some of
1: the Kamensko workers. There is also uh, one video I mention in, um, in the book. It's a, it's a video clip from a song called Firma or Enterprises, Enterprise" by um, Croatian band Hladno Pivo and uh, they're kind of involving uh, workers' narratives in the song and the song is uh, explicitly denouncing uh, privatisation and the ways in which um, workers were uh, marginalised during transition so I'm looking to a certain extent to to this new um, cultural production which are trying to valorize workers' experiences. And we have to remember that for a long time, these workers' voices were not uh, represented uh, in any way. So they were uh, completely marginalised. So this new interest by um, activists and cultural workers into the lives of industrial workers is something very new. And a number of exhibitions have been going on as well on um, factory memories in places like Slovenia, Uh, So there is really definitely a new uh, awareness about the importance of industrial heritage in the region.
0: And what's incredibly striking about it is that it's individuals who are performing this, who are writing these songs, uh, as opposed to under socialism, where you had the state valorizing and acknowledging workers, right? So I found that really striking. As a follow-up, I was curious about how these worker cooperatives function uh, to support women and their families, so you mentioned cooperatives and other forms of uh, support networks?
1: There are a number of examples of self-managed uh, enterprises uh, that are uh, existing today in the in the post-Yugoslav region. So there are studies of, of different different cooperatives and different self-managed enterprises in different sectors. The one I studied is the, um, the Kamensko Cooperative, which was founded by some of the workers who were engaged in the hunger strike in 2010. And this cooperative was founded notably to uh, help some of these workers who had lost their jobs to bridge the years between um, unemployment and, let's say, their um, full-time pension services. So they will they will need a few more years to to reach full-time pension. And so this cooperative is hiring some of these workers to manage to get them to to their retirement. And um, the I was very struck by the. the founder of this cooperative who uh, mentioned that she always uh, walked with her um, head up so she didn't want to be humiliated by managers or bosses or uh, even trade unionists who didn't support the strike she really tried to keep her head up and also she was keeping always this feminine look with a lipstick and a very fashionable hairdo and uh, and she said nobody has to know if you're not feeling well nobody has to know on the outside, I, I like to keep my dignity, I like to keep my head up. And she would also lobby for uh, some of her fellow workers in order for them to uh, to get a better job and to manage to to survive this transition. So I found there that it was a really striking uh, attempt at uh, solidarity and, uh, and also this cooperative is... Um, organizing a number of sewing and knitting workshops and uh, activists are um, ordering bags and other uh, items from this cooperative so that uh, this cooperative could uh, stay afloat and also they're uh, doing a number of um, clothes repairing for for the community. It's
0: uh, located in a uh,
1: working class neighborhood called Tresniewka in Zagreb.
0: Yeah, I find it also striking that you have this emergence of cooperatism after socialism, you have the collapse, you have the emergence of neoliberalism, and people are kind of going back to older practices. Okay, well, I think we've run out of time here. And it's been such a fascinating discussion. And I really enjoyed your book and highly recommend it. So I thought we could just end with a brief discussion of your current project.
1: Currently, I'm uh, working on a transnational biography of Yugoslav politician Vida Tomcic, who used to be the main figure in charge of uh, gender politics during socialism and who also was a very important actor in non aligned and UN settings. So I hope to start working on this uh, new project soon during the summer. And this kind of connects with my previous book because I'm looking again at gender and at the ways in which. Uh, gender pedagogies and gender forms of emancipation were taught. Only uh, this time I'm looking more uh, at the leadership side rather than at the working class uh, women's side.
0: Well, it sounds fascinating, and I look forward to seeing publications come out of this research, and I wish you the best of luck conducting research as the archives gradually open up. And uh, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jill. It has been a pleasure.